Today's scripture comes from 1 Chronicles 29, 10-13. Therefore, David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty, for all that is in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Several years ago, we had a young Ukrainian immigrant as our member at the Brunswick Church. He was strong and energetic, and he could cook like nobody I had ever met before. His mother came because she had some medical needs from the Ukraine and worshiped with us for about six months. And she happened to come on the 4th of July. We were there um, celebrating our national freedoms. And we had all kinds of songs, America the Beautiful and My Country Tis of Thee and God Bless America. And as we sang those songs, especially America the Beautiful, many of us, the tears just flowed because we are so blessed. We are so blessed to live in this country. I stood in the lobby and she came out that day and she put her arms around me and she spoke Ukrainian, she spoke no English. So she did not know the words that we were singing. She could only feel the emotion in her hearts. And she said to me and her son interpreted, I have never seen anyone love their country like this. And I just want to say, we love our country. Isn't that right? And as many problems as it has, we have still a constitution that is unparalleled for giving us freedom. And we have the ability to make choices. And we have these incredible resources and this incredible scenery. And what's not to love? So I just, I want to be sure that I say that before I transition to the fact that as Adventists, we know that that freedom will not be forever. We know there will be a day when we will lose the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion. It's prophesied. It's right there. That lamb-like beast is going to speak like a dragon. And it would be very easy for us to get tied up in knots wondering how soon that sequence of events is going to happen. So instead of preaching about how great America is, I want to preach about the King of Heaven. I want to give you the confidence to know that his kingdom and his government will never end. And his kingdom and his government, we can salute and give our allegiance to that on this very morning. And that will give us strength to make it through whatever lies ahead. We have a king. And this king is glorious and just and right and fair. And no matter what our future may bring, our future is secure with him forever. Okay, I could just sit down now, couldn't I? 
but I want to talk to you about God as our king. A second grade teacher gave an art assignment to her class. She said, draw something that's really important to you. She handed out white paper, and the kids pulled out their crayons and set to work. In 10 minutes, some of the students finished. By 20 minutes, all of them were finished, except Johnny. They pulled out their spelling books, and he continued to draw. The teacher went back to see his creation. It was bright and colorful, but she could not distinguish the subject. What are you drawing, Johnny? God. But Johnny, no one has ever seen God, so we don't know what he looks like. They will when I get through, he answered proudly. Of all the things we do every day, God is the most interested in how we think. And of all the things we think about every day, he is most concerned about how we think about him. He wants to be the subject of our thoughts and conversations, the first thing we think about when we wake up in the morning, and the last thing we think about at night. He wants our thoughts to return to him every time our mind is not otherwise absorbed with the everyday details of life. That's called abiding in him, when our thoughts just automatically go back and think about Jesus. We're finishing the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to look at this last phrase of the Lord's Prayer. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Now, if you have an NIV or a modern translation, there's a good chance this verse is not in your Bible. Does that bother you? Would you like to know why? It's never found in the end of the Lord's Prayer in Luke. And if you're at a gathering of Catholics and Protestants, you will notice that the Catholics finish with deliver us from evil, and the Protestants keep going with the for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. We say this last line, which is known as the doxology, doxa meaning glory, and it literally means give glory when we say this line, the doxology. The reason that this is often not included is because many of the ancient manuscripts include it, but some of them, especially the Codex Vaticanus, which is the most important one, does not. And so some Bibles think, okay, this belongs here, and other Bibles say that's an add-in. As a result, some scholars believe that the ending was not part of the original Lord's Prayer, but it was added very soon afterward. It was customary for Jews to add a doxology to the end of every prayer. And if you're going to be adding a doxology to the end of every prayer, this is a pretty good one. This is an amazing one. To finish every prayer reminding yourself who God is and praising him. One of the earliest Christian documents outside of the New Testament was the Didache. It was a first-century manual of morals, worship, and doctrine, one of the very earliest church manuals is basically what it was. The Didache had the Lord's Prayer and included this line before a hundred years had passed after Jesus had taught us to pray this prayer. So if it was added, it was added very early in church history, probably while Paul was still alive. Okay, so, so there's a good reason that we can say this with confidence. According to Luke 9.51, when Jesus taught the disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer, he was on his way to Jerusalem 
on his way to die. And when he taught them, it was appropriate to end on a somber note, deliver us from evil, because he was going to face a whole lot of evil in just the next few days. The early church, though, had experienced not only the cross, but had experienced the resurrection. And they were not content to finish the Lord's Prayer without remembering Jesus, that he was at God's right hand in heaven, that he had risen from the grave, and that now he was King of kings and Lord of lords. So they may have added this. They felt compelled to finish on a note of triumph. They were praying a big picture prayer with a long view of reality rather than focusing on Caesar and their present challenges. And so if they did add this, we can say it was a good idea, right? And we can pray this. These words of doxology that the early church most likely added to the Lord's Prayer are almost exactly the same words and thoughts and ideas as were found in our scripture in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 13. It's not like they just made up something. They took a biblical doxology from the Old Testament and added it to the end of the prayer. They wanted to remind each other to finish every prayer with a focus on the power of God. Not a bad idea. To finish your prayers by focusing on God's power. This is not just rote repetition. This is reminding ourselves who we've just been talking to and how much we can trust him how much power he has, how much authority he has, and that if he promises something, we can know without a doubt he can make it happen. So let's look at this passage in 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 13. It says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. Now, some of those words might be used to describe America, right? We're a great nation. We have power. We have old glory. And you know, I still cry when I see a flag raised, especially if there's some kind of patriotic music in the background. That's okay to love our country, but we have to realize that the real glory, the deeper forever glory, belongs to God and not to America. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom, and you are exalted as head over all. So, regardless of what you think about our current president, regardless of whether you're happy or not happy, we have somebody that has more authority, that is in control of this world. He is exalted as head over all. And these words of praise kindle a strong faith and the belief that God is in control. But there's more. This is still the same passage. He says, this is David. He says, wealth and honor come from you. Anybody of you would like a little more wealth or a little more honor? Where does it come from? It comes from following God and the principles of his kingdom. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, O oh Lord, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. You can't think about God's character unless you finish by praising him. 
And you can't think about God's character without, in the end, thanking him for who he is and what he has done. So you see, in this description of who God is, David finishes with, we give you thanks. Anyone thankful out there today? Yeah, we give you thanks. We give you thanks, first of all, that we're Americans, because it is going to be 4th of July. But we thank you even more for Jesus, who is our king, who will someday put an end to sin and sorrow and let us live with him in his kingdom forever. Right thinking about God should lead us to the right worship of God. And Paul, if you read his writings carefully, often moves from talking doctrine directly into praising God. And just watch how he does this. He just changes direction midstream. Because you can't talk true doctrine without it creating praise. If you're focused on Jesus and you're talking about Jesus, you're going to end up praising him. And he taught humans about who God was, and then he praised God. R.C. Sproul writes, But even the scholars who are convinced that this line, Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, in the original prayer, they give very little attention to it. Should we give attention to this line? Absolutely. Instead, many scholars treat it like it's a little postscript, a, an add-on, a throwaway line that isn't important. It's all the, all the um, petitions that precede it that really count. And I would like to say, I believe this line is the most important part of the prayer because it's saying who it is we are petitioning, who it is we're asking to give these blessings to us. Could it be that the phrase, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, is the essential bedrock of understanding the essence of the Lord's Prayer? The doxology focuses on the power and majesty of God, and as we focus on his attributes, we can have hope. No matter what else is going on in our life, whether it's good or bad, whether the stock market has fallen, or whether there's civil war even, he is still on his throne. These petitions will not be answered because we have been eloquent, obedient, or whether we begged hard enough, our requests are answered because God wants to answer them. And it's the Father's good will to give us the kingdom and his good will to give us his spirit and his good will to fulfill his plan for humanity and take us all home. That's his will, and we can pray with that assurance that when we say these words that Jesus himself taught us, the God who has all the power and the glory is listening and wants to answer those requests. Okay, and then we finish the prayer with the word amen. Okay, let's have some biblical scholars. Raise your hand if you know what amen means. Okay, Martin Luther writes, as he explains the Lord's Prayer, that amen means yes, yes, it will be done. It will happen. So here is a challenge for you to just try out for the next few summer weeks. Start finishing your prayers. Instead of finishing with amen, finish with yes, yes, it will be done. What are you praying about? Anybody praying for their kids? Absolutely. Anybody praying for their health or the health of someone they love? Can you finish those petitions, those requests with, yes, yes, it will be done. That's what amen means. 
Pretty cool. So we pray the Lord's Prayer with the assurance that God will answer us. And when we end this prayer, we don't finish by asking ourselves questions like, I wonder if I prayed for what God wanted me to pray about. We're following his lead. We're using his model as our framework. I wonder if God really heard me. I wonder if God will answer. You can put all those questions to rest and just say, he heard me, and he has the power and the authority to do something about it. We have prayed the very thoughts that Jesus himself taught us. How would he not keep his promise to hear and answer? Amen. It will be done. God will answer our prayer. And he will answer our prayer not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Okay, so let's unpack this doxology with the elements of prayer. It starts with, for yours is the kingdom. This is a reminder that it is all his. Not mine, not yours, not ours, but his. It's his kingdom, his power, and his glory. The word for is the hinge that connects the rest of the Lord's Prayer and this lovely doxology. For grounds all those petitions we have just asked with praise to God for who he is. First comes our list of requests, and then comes our reminder to ourselves of who we're talking to. And then it says, your kingdom, for yours is the kingdom. Back in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, we prayed for God's kingdom to come. We pray, thy kingdom come, and we trust that we might be able to have a small part of helping his kingdom to be extended on planet Earth. That's why we do Vacation Bible School, because we want the children of our community to know about Jesus and his kingdom. We trust that all these things we do, because we're church, will help others to know who God is. And we pray for God's spirit to help spread the rule of God's kingdom throughout the earth. In the doxology, we also acknowledge that he is already the king. Yours is the kingdom. He is already the king. He is not waiting to become the king. He is the king. And wherever Jesus is, his kingdom is. Do you have Jesus in your heart? Then you are a kingdom person. And you are part of his kingdom. You're a citizen of his kingdom. You are called to further his kingdom in this world. Jesus is the king, and wherever he is, that's his kingdom. Okay, let's look at some biblical ideas of God as king. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of glory. He's the king of saints, and he's the king of kings. Pretty cool. Is he king or not? If he's king, then we need to be his subjects and honor him, and obey him, and do his bidding. Psalm 103, verse 19 tells us, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Okay, when you consider the word all, does that include China? Is God ruling in China, overarching his will with this, person, this nation that we consider our threat? And Russia, does it include the developing world? God is working out his purposes in this world. Kingdom and power as ascribed to this doxology are 
two words expressing one composite thought. And the thought is God's omnipotent control. And some of us have a hard time with that because there's still some pretty horrible things going on. But is God in control or not? And if we believe God is in control, can we just put our worrying down and praise instead? And just say, I know God's in control. I know he's got this. He is the king of kings. Kingdom is used pointing to an all-embracing mastery that God has over all creation. He is the king of everything. With the kids, we sing, who's the king of the jungle? You know, he is. He's the king over all of us. And now we want to think about his power. This is not just unchecked arbitrary power, like an unpredictable tornado, a rogue elephant, or a fascist totalitarian dictator. When God has power, he uses it for the good of mankind. Ephesians 1.19 describes God's power in this way. He has incomparably great power for us who believe. Okay, does that include you? Incomparably great power that God has for you. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Okay, that's power. Far above every rule and authority, dominion and power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And I love this next phrase. God placed all things under his feet. How many things? All things. Which means there's nothing going on without his permission. Without him seeing how it's going to further the history of our nation and of creation toward the final ending point that we're all looking forward to. So, Revelation 4, verse 12, tells us, There is a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Is this good news or bad news? It depends on who's sitting on the throne, doesn't it? If our enemy, the devil, were sitting on the throne in heaven, we would be in a bad way. The throne is a symbol of government, order, and authority. And when earth is experiencing disaster after disaster and all the human ugliness that happens when we grapple for power, the lies, the deceit, not every king has all the power they would want. And I don't know of any human king I would want sitting on the throne in heaven or any human president. The kingdoms of this world have always been limited monarchies because they are led by human beings. But the king who reigns above all is God Almighty. His power is absolute, but so is his love. So is his justice. Absolute power would corrupt absolutely if our king were a sinful human being. But he's not. He's good. The throne in heaven is only good news if the character of the one reigning on it is good and holy. And it is. But here is the most wonderful news of this sermon. The power, his power is intrinsically linked to his glory. And he's not only omnipotent, he is good. Take that home and chew on it. He's not only omnipotent, he is good. So, the Lord said to Moses, oh, Moses said to the Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord answered, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. So when 
Moses asked to see glory. What did God want to show him? Goodness. God's glory is his goodness. God is telling us that it's his character that is his glory. Great athletes and great musicians, we like to celebrate them. They're worth extra attention, honor, and value based on who they are and what they've accomplished. The original Hebrew word for glory means weight or heaviness. Joseph, there you go. It's the word kavod, weight or significance, value. So in those days, they weighed everything on one of those little balance scales with the two little trays that now sometimes you can still see in the grocery store. The heavier something was, the more valuable it was. An ounce of gold is incomparably less than a pound of gold, right? So weight is speaking about the mind-boggling value and significance of our king. The more contemporary word is awesome. That's a fun word to use, isn't it? Awe-inspiring. Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2 tells us, ascribe to the Lord, almighty ones, ascribe to the Lord. What are we supposed to be saying that God is? Glory and strength. Uh, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. We're being told to ascribe God glory. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his brightness, his holiness, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. It is his character that is his glory. It is his holiness, his goodness that is his glory. Well, humans are never glorious in everything. I can garden. I can cook. But I can't balance my checkbook. Mark does that. Before I married him... If I couldn't make it balance, I'd just close the account and start another one. I'm so glad I have Mark. And we see this in athletes who try to change sports. If Russell Wilson decided he was tired of football and went over to the Mariners and asked to be put on the team without ever practicing baseball, how good would he be? We all fit our little niches and we become specialized at being good at something. And they say 10,000 hours of practice to meet proficiency. And you can't practice everything. You have to just decide where your niche is and practice hard at that. But God is good at everything. Everything about him is awesome and glorious. He was not only a straight-A student, he was a quarterback, the lead singer in the chorus, and the student body president. Meanwhile, he's completely humble and really nice to the unpopular girls. He's good at everything. He's good to the core, with not a speck of selfishness, meanness, or arrogance. He can do everything he chooses to do. Now, if a human being was that competent... What else would he be? Arrogant, usually. Only God can be that powerful and that good at everything and still be humble and gentle. Only God can do that. God's glory is unique because it is intrinsic. He is self-defined, self-initiated, and self-expressed. Everything we know about him is because he shared it, so we could know it. So when we acknowledge God's glory, it builds our faith, and it begins to change us into his likeness. We absorb a little bit of that glory. We absorb a little bit of that holiness. We absorb a little bit of that character of love when we focus on it and praise it. Now, humans didn't start glorious, Some of them worked hard, practiced the 10,000 hours, became competent, 
They developed a reputation for their skill. They became the best and were given an honorable position. That's why we have Hall of Fame. We have Hall of Fame for all kinds of things. But every great musician, every great actor, every great athlete also had to have a mother that financed it, a coach, a teacher, and a mentor. Every human being is not a self-made man. They always have other humans adding value into their lives. God never needed a coach. Where God started, he had no room for improvement. Of course, he never started. He always was. There never was a time when God was not there. He never had to work at his glory. He never had to practice. It was intrinsic to his being. What wet is to water, blue is to sky, heat to fire, glory is to God. Intrinsic to the nature of how things are. And I would like to suggest that you really can't talk about God without talking about glory. They come hand in hand. And of all the glory that men pursue is only ascribed glory. Think about Tom Brady retiring after 10 Super Bowls, and I know he's not popular here. But someday he's going to get old, and all the people on the West Coast will celebrate when Tom Brady gets old. Or think about Miss America, who uses the very best skin care products and works out for hours every day, but she's going to get old too. In fact, she's going to die. So will Tom Brady someday. The biggest proof that human glory fades is that we all get old and we all die. There's kind of a one-to-one -one correspondence and nobody is going to get out without having that sequence happen. But God is the ancient of days. He's always been and he never will be old and crotchety. Yay! By himself, within himself, he will not only be glorious, but he always will be glorious. He's never going to lose it. Perfectly, intrinsically glorious. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah 48, 11, he will not share or yield his glory to another. And this is a warning for those of us that would like a little glory. We'd like you all to notice what we're doing and how well we're doing it. And God says, if you're in it for your own glory, I cannot bless you. If you're in it so that other people will notice and recognize and praise you, I can't pour out my spirit to work in you and through you the way I can when you're about honoring and giving me glory. It was the habit of Johann Sebastian Bach to write at the bottom of each of his musical compositions the initials SDG, to remind himself that everyone who played these compositions and enjoyed it and praised this music, that the glory was to, to go to God alone. SDG, of course, stands for the Latin phrase soli deo gloria which means glory to God alone. Bach didn't write just DG, glory to God. But save a little glory for Bach. No, it had to be the complete package, SDG, glory to God alone. Maybe God entrusted all that musical genius to Bach because he knew that Bach would give all the glory back to him. And maybe he hasn't entrusted the rest of us with quite that kind of amount of genius because we still would want a little of that glory for ourselves. As humans, we can withhold information when it's not in our best interest to expose it. We can plead the fifth. Sometimes God chooses to veil his glory so as not to overwhelm us because his direct presence would consume us. You cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. It's remarkable that God chooses to manifest his glory at all. 
He wants us to see him. He wants us to know him. But we've got to understand how powerful who he is would be. Psalm 19 tells us, the heavens and earth declares the glory of God. Wake up. Go outside. Look up. Look around you. The heavens and earth are screaming God's glory. Who else do you know that could do that, that could make the stars talk and the birds sing? Sunsets are not glorious. God is glorious. He just painted the sky. And when we get hooked on creation, we have not completed the work until we praise the creator. Okay, it's summer. There are beautiful things everywhere. Don't just say, oh, isn't that beautiful, without getting to. And I praise you, my glorious Father, for making this beauty for me to see, for giving me eyes to see it. Don't stop halfway. Give God the praise. 1 Timothy 6.16 describes God. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords. By the way, this is one of those verses that tell us that it's okay to call Jesus Lord and God, that Jesus is truly God, because this same phrase, King of kings and Lord of lords, is attributed to Jesus in the book of Revelation. Okay, and then it says, who alone is immortal, who lives in inapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might, there's that word again, forever. So the sun is an illustration of God's glory as inapproachable light. It's a place of self-generated heat. We can't take an airplane to the sun. It would take us 17 years to fly there or 200 years if you prefer to drive. Sun, the sun is so big and so powerful that it heats the whole earth up from 93.5 million, 93 million miles away. And we would all burn up long before we arrived. And God says, I made that. I make it rise every morning and I make it set every night and sometimes I make it pretty. I wanted to show you what I can do. That's glory on display. God is advertising his character and attributes through creation. And because he has done this, we all, even if we have a Bible in our hand or if we don't have a Bible in our hand, have opportunity to know who God is. So it says, since that what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood by that which is made. And then the next verse tells us, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. Do you see why they're judged? Because they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. So if you are not glorifying him, if you are not giving thanks to him, you're on slippery ground. We need to get to the end, to get to that final job of praising him. And if we refuse to glorify him and give thanks to him, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And by the way, that's still Romans 121, not 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. So the glory is often described as emanating light. Revelation 21, 22 tells us that when we get to heaven, we won't need the sun. Why? God's glory gives it light. He is so full of light that in an eternity, he's going to say, son, I don't need you anymore. But what is the clearest representation of God's glory? 
Okay? This should be something you all know. What is the clearest representation of God's glory? Jesus. It says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. John 1.14 says, we beheld his glory. And when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he unzipped his humanity and let his deity show for just a moment. And his disciples had no clue what to do, so Peter just talked. I think some of us might still do the same. And then in 2 Corinthians 4.4, it says the world around us is blinded because they can't see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. They can't see Jesus. If you want to see the glory of God, look at Jesus. Look, he's the visual expression of God's character. Okay, so then in verse 6 of that chapter, it says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. So where's the glory now? In our hearts. He made his light shine in our hearts to give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's where we get glory, is in the face of Christ. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels, the next verse says, in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God. And, got to remember this, not from us. Okay, our treasure is in knowing Jesus personally having him live in our hearts. So life has its problems, but we have glory from the inside. That means what's happening on the outside no longer defines us. That means whatever even is happening to our country, if our country is losing its glory, we still have glory because we have Jesus in our hearts. You have more glory on the inside than what's happening around you on the outside. Is that good news? Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Okay, one last idea. We were created for his glory. He made you so that you would give him glory. And any person who doesn't live for the glory of God does not understand why they're here. You can replace it with secular, self-centered attempts to make your life count for something. And when we sin, it's the interruption of the glory of God. So how often are we interrupting the glory that we're supposed to be showing the world? Every time we sin. All have sinned. I like that too, though. All have sinned. Nobody gets passed with a perfect record. And then Paul also tells us, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't even take a drink of water without thanking God and giving him glory. Where is advertisements made for his glory? So it's 4th of July, and I'm sure that wherever there are children, there will be glow sticks, right? Any of you love glow sticks? You can put the ends together and shake it up, and it'll glow, and, and it's really cool when it's dark. Okay, what happens to the glow stick the next day? It loses its glow, right? And two days later, there's no glow at all. But you can put those glow stink sticks under a lamp, and they can absorb glory and reflect it again. Okay, I want you all to be glow sticks. And when you lose your glow, I want you to find a place to read your Bible and open it up and think about Jesus, and you will glow again. Okay, that's, that's the way we can do it. And in Exodus 34:29, Moses came down the mountain. His face was shining, 
But then he decided he had to put a veil up. Was it so the people wouldn't see it shining? No, it's so the people wouldn't see when it stopped shining. He said, I want you all to remember my face is shining and not see that the shine has disappeared. Okay, the more time we spend with Jesus, the more our face will shine. Over the passage of time, the, the light of his glory fades unless we come back and soak it up again. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 tell us that we will be transformed, I love this, into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Now, I think that starts now, but I think it's going to take forever for us to become completely made into the likeness of Jesus. It will be felt and known in our life when we look at him. So, I have a challenge for you. When you are driving, when you are praying, when you are washing dishes or weeding your garden, pray to see his glory. Pray to know his glory and pray to reflect his glory. May God's glory be the primary purpose of your life. So, at the end of this model prayer, we acknowledge that God deserves it. We acknowledge that we have no glory in us, that he's glorious beyond our ability ever to express or represent, and he's never required to share it. Okay. And so let's look again at this last phrase of the Lord's Prayer. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Now the petition has become praised. And I want to just look at that last word, forever. Forever. How long will Jesus be the king? For eternity. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 says, says this. He is called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then the next verse says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That's good news. That's such good news. No regime change every four years. No revolutions. No lying under oath. No end to his just and true government. No end to his peace. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establish and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that day on and forever. And I would like to suggest that you take this verse, write it out by hand on a little card, and put it wherever you read the news. Don't wring your hands when you read the news. Know that something better is coming. It is coming. And he's going to give us the strength that we need to get from here to there. He's not going to leave us halfway, but he's going to see us through that tough stuff that is coming. And I am still very happy to be an American, but I'm even more happy to have Jesus as my king.